Usually, if you eat a salad, you might feel light right there, but it's not like you eat a salad and then an hour later you say, I can literally feel the pounds shedding off my body. Whereas if you have a cup of coffee, cup of tea, or a beer, or a glass of whiskey, you know within an hour what it did to you. It gave you a kick in the butt to get your day started, or it took the edge off and started you relaxing, right? And so there's something really tangible about those things, which is why I think it has enduring value. And people are very hardwired to kind of understand a certain food by how it makes you feel in the moment. This is food futurist Mike Lee speaking. And I think this statement is probably the wisest thing I've heard in a long time because it explains so well why it is so hard going on a diet. And that's just one of the reasons why I'm really excited to share this episode of Lives of Tomorrow with you all today. My name's Carla Bazashi, and I'm the CEO of WGSN, the world's leading consumer insight and trend forecasting company. Now, as you might have already guessed, this episode will be focused on the food of tomorrow. But not just futuristic foods. Think more about the foods that you and I will be eating around the dinner table with our families, but also how that food might have the power to make a difference on something as big as the climate. My name is Mike Lee. I am a co-founder and CEO of innovation consultancy called Alpha Food Labs and founder of a company called The Future Market, uh, where we do trends forecasting and scenario planning and envisioning of what the future of food could look like. Amazing. Now, should conversations be about food be had on empty or a full stomach? <laughs> it depends on what kind of conversation you want to have. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, it's post lunchtime where I'm speaking to you from, so I'm on a, I'm on a semi full stomach at the All moment. All right, so. it's post breakfast time where I am, so I am as well. Plenty of food for thought. Okay, so to kick things off, what was a pivotal moment, or maybe a person in your career that's had the most impact on getting you to where you are today? I think probably one of them is my grandfather, although it wasn't a direct influence. I think his just kind of ambient lessons of how he kind of carried his life out absorbed into me over the years. You know, he was a restaurant owner here in Detroit since the 1940s. And I remember the story telling him about him and his four brothers that immigrated from Hong Kong to the United States. And when they were deciding where to set up shop, people were wondering why they didn't go to San Francisco, where there was a Chinatown, New York, where there was a Chinatown. And he picked Detroit, of all places. And one of the reasons why he said he ended up here was because I don't want to compete with anyone else. And he opened up a really big Chinese restaurant. And for the longest time, up until the late 90s, they thrived because they were not the only game in town, but one of the only games in town. And that kind of courage to say, I'm going to go into the place where my community isn't as well developed. I don't know as many people. And the idea of kind of Chinese restaurants in the 40s in the United States wasn't really mainstream. I just thought that took a lot of guts and all in the service of just trying to say, I'm going to go where people haven't paved a path yet. And so I've really taken that to heart through everything I've done, even though he never came out and just said it that way. I just know his story and that's just how I took it. It's really amazing. It's really interesting, actually. The last person I spoke to, it was their grandfather as well that had been inspiring, but in a very different way. So kind of, I guess, these generational impacts that we might not realize at the time, but end up shaping our lives is is really interesting to me. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Now, before we get into the nitty gritty and I start grilling you on the future of food, something for you to think about while we're speaking. Yeah. It's actually a question I got from one of the early guests on this podcast. And so you don't have to answer it right now. But what I'm going to ask you right at the end is, when was the last time that you learned something new? So preferably something that's had a real impact on the way that you live your life and maybe the way that you see the world. We'll come back to that at the end. Great. Mike, you are known as a food futurist, but not everybody knows what a futurist really is. So can you describe your role a little bit further and what you do for the food industry? I help food companies think about the long-term future. So meaning what's going to happen in the world to the marketplace, to consumers, or what could happen outside of, you know, just like the normal one or two year cycles, right? So five years is typically kind of a minimum, but you know, it's, it's not a hard and fast range. I would say five years to a decade, if a food company is wanting to invest in their future today and change the way they're innovating today, so they're better prepared for a longer term future. That's really a sweet spot of of what we do and we help companies do is to plan for that five to 10 year period. Not everything that happens in the world you can just react to very quickly. Sometimes to be prepared for a certain environment in five years, you have to start investing into something now. You know, you can't just pick it up one year before it happens. And so we try to keep companies looking towards the future on top of their need to look at the present. You have to run the day-to-day business. I get it. But I think you also need to make sure you have a concerted effort to kind of look up at the horizon every now and then. Otherwise, you're just going to walk into a wall or walk off a cliff and you're not going to see it. Okay, so let's get a bit broader. How would you summarize the food industry today? And what are the major things that you think are going to change in the coming years? I would say the way that it's set up today is we're sort of seeing the old guard try to adjust to what's happening with the new consumer and new companies. The big food system that we have right now, you know, the five or six companies that own just about every brand logo you would see in the supermarket, that blueprint was really established around this idea of let's intensively produce a small amount of ingredients in massive quantities on a large agriculture scale. So things like soy, wheat, to name two of the big ones. And then let's design products that use those very kind of high-intensity monoculture products and and create marketing around them and capture people's imagination. This is how we ended up with sort of the breakfast cereals of, you know, the 60s, 70s, and 80s that are still around today, you know, albeit maybe out a little bit more fashion. But that's really what they were really good at. They were taking agriculture commodities, processing them in some form, and then kind of building mythology story around it to market it and sell it, right? That's sort of the model that I think is going away, though. And I think a lot of big food companies are really having a quandary because the thing that made them successful over the past 50 years is still largely keeping the lights on for them. But they see the consumer is changing, so it's this really difficult process of trying to service a new consumer who may not like anything that I produced in the past, but still trying to keep a business that sells the stuff from the past because that's the stuff that pays the bills more or less right now. And it's hard for them to disrupt themselves. Mike, we see this a lot with the WGSN clients that we work with as well, that although some of the trends that we're forecasting are beginning to bubble up, they might not necessarily be big enough at the moment. They're not hitting mass immediately. And so how are you future-proofing and making sure you've got those products or those different food types that cater for a new taste bud 
but you've still got the things that people, yeah, that are that are filling our supermarket shelves and probably still filling lots of our cupboard space at home, but finding that little extra in there as, as our taste buds are evolving and how we're looking for new stimulus, we're traveling more, we're tasting new things, and then we're wanting that at home as well. So it's this really careful balancing act, I think, that so many of the big food companies and the smaller ones that are coming onto the scene and disrupting things need to find. Absolutely. It's not easy starting a food company. However, I will say probably in the last decade or two, it's never been easier to start one. You know, the resources, the things that you can kind of have access to are more available than they ever have been. And that kind of, you know, you give new tools to new people with ideas and they can finally get their ideas into reality, right? And so that's where I think we've seen this huge rush over the last 20 years of kind of these younger brands. Some of them have become the big brands now, but there's this really good energy, I think, around food entrepreneurs and trying to say, like, look, we we reject the uh, mainstream thing that everyone's, you know, buying in, in droves. We want something different. Can you give me any examples of specific kind of those upstarts that you're talking about, those food entrepreneurs that you really admire? You know, I used to work at Chobani. So that was a great example of a company that was a food company that almost scaled as fast as maybe faster than a tech company. I think they went from literally zero sales to around a billion. And I want to say it's like six or seven years or something like that. That's that's an amazing amount of growth, right? But, you know, it still kind of had a very entrepreneurial edge and things like that. So, you know, that's one example of a company that I think has become one of the big guys, you know, and they they led the charge to have all the incumbents kind of follow them into this new category, you know. So I think that's a big example of something that, that has a huge impact. You know, smaller companies, I used to work through an accelerator I used to work for with a company called Four Sigmatic. They do medicinal mushrooms and adaptogenic mushroom coffees and things like that. And at first glance, it's seemingly one of the harder propositions to kind of communicate to people, right? There's a whole kind of universe of these esoteric mushrooms that mainstream Americans and Europeans haven't maybe heard of, but they've got really interesting properties for your body. And they just hit it out of the park and executed so well on how they do their marketing, how to do their communications. You know, they really are succeeding and thriving and they have a huge loyal customer base for a product that doesn't typically fit the normal mold of what sells in grocery stores, meaning lowest common denominator kind of dumbed down products that are made for the masses, right? Like there's a lot of storytelling and education around the mushrooms, but they've done it in such a way that they have a very meaningful user base and and success. So I, I just think that's just an inspiring story that if done well, you can, you know, you don't have to dumb things down. Hot beverages, just as a category there, is really interesting because if you think of the the tea and coffee, and yes, there are cultural differences, which mean here sitting in the UK, everyone loves their cups of tea and in other countries, it's more coffee, but it's it's just a part of everyone's day to day. Yeah. But the proliferation of different flavors, different herbs, the medicinal mushroom aspect that you're talking about in the coffee market that's exploded. But then you've also got how people make it. I mean, instant coffee. When I was growing up, my parents would drink instant coffee. Mine whereas too. now we've got the, <laughs> you know, we've got the Nespresso machine at home. And that's a kind of expectation that people have there. So just as in a category, we could probably spend an hour talking about it and how oh, that's totally. changed and and no doubt will continue to evolve as we as we look into the future. What's your prediction then for hot drinks? 
I think they'll always be here in some form. I mean, you know, an old boss of mine once told me, never bet against caffeine or alcohol. And if you think about it, those are two things that have literally been around since the dawn of agriculture, right? And they don't go away. Nobody, nobody really has a, you know, a thing that says like, oh, you know, is coffee trending down next year or teacup? No, it's been around for thousands of years and it's always going to be here as this anchor. So I think we'll see more proliferation of just variety, but I think coffee, tea is here to stay. You know, I'm, I'm not going to be the foolish one that predicts their demise. <laughs> because the end of tea and coffee, that's not the prediction. Don't think it's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think, and I, I think about this a lot too with food because coffee, tea, things that have caffeine or things that have alcohol was sort of the, you know, the opposite of the caffeine is you feel immediately that it did something to you. And people always say like, okay, why is it so hard to go on a diet? Why is it so hard to kind of eat a salad every day instead of a hamburger and say, I'm going to lose weight, right? Well, part of it is usually if you eat a salad, you might feel light right there, but it's not like you eat a salad and then an hour later you say, I can literally feel the pounds shedding off my body. Whereas if you have a cup of coffee, cup of tea or a beer or a glass of whiskey, you know within an hour what it did to you. You know, it gave you a kick in the butt to get your day started or it took the edge off and started you relaxing, right? And so there's something really tangible about those things, which is why I think it has enduring value. People are very hardwired to kind of understand a certain food by how it makes you feel in the moment. I think this is the smartest thing anyone has ever said about dieting. Well, Honestly, it's, it, that's, it's like a light bulb's just gone out on it's, my it's, head. I mean, it's the truth. We all know what it means to eat healthy, work out, lose weight. Why don't we do it every day? Why don't all of us do it? It's because like, at the end of the day, as much as we know in our academic minds that this is the most healthful meal, this is the most sustainable meal, it doesn't feel like it's healthy or sustainable exactly when you're eating it, right? And you don't feel the intended effect of, I want to solve climate change. You don't just eat a salad and then climate change is done. You eat a salad, you get tens of millions of people to eat salads on a regular basis and over a sustained amount of time. And then maybe we'll have a one and a half degree Celsius reduction in the climate or people will lose 10 pounds in 10 months. So... It's so hard for people because food comes at us emotionally and viscerally to keep these kind of long-term academic abstract things in mind, right? And, and it's a long-winded way. I mean, it's interesting you ask about the coffee and tea thing because I think the heart of why I think those things are never going away is actually a heart of kind of the thesis around food is that things with immediate effect tend to do really well if the effect is desirable. Right. We're going to just deviate from the food questions, though we're definitely coming back to them. But a few reoccurring questions to try and get to know you a little better. Very quick answers I'm looking for. So just the, the first thing that comes to your head. Why do you work? Uh, gives me purpose. That <laughs> you, might, you might just have preempted the next question. Do you have a sense of purpose in your work? <laughs> yes, I do. I do. I want to. I want to show people that have a lot of power to change things. That there's there's different ways of doing things. I, I think I'm I'm here to come into these groups and people and leaders and and throw them curveballs so they can stretch their thinking a little bit. You know. Do you have a sense of purpose in your life? Absolutely. I recently had a daughter, so that comes with a lot of 
a lot of purpose. I do so much for her, obviously. And so that's a big piece of it. But I also think like one of the things I love and I've been trying to teach her this as well, too, is just there is just inspiration, beauty and education everywhere you look. And just because you work in the food industry or you work in the music industry or you work in the tech industry doesn't mean you should shut out everything. Right. And I think that's maybe why I gravitated towards doing kind of innovation and, and design and then and, and futures planning, because it's a distillation of all of these disparate signals. You know, you don't just research food trends and then say, this is next year's food trend. You know, you have to look at how are people living? How is society operating? What's the environment look like? Everything. And so I think, I guess to bring that down to a quick answer is just that that sense of wonder is just really huge. When are you the most creative? Late at night when everyone's gone to bed and it's quiet and no digital devices are going off. No daughter asking for attention. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If she's sleeping well. Okay. Next question. What makes you happy? Oh boy. Okay, my daughter's one, and then I think just light bulbs going off. You know, new connections being made where you see something in one place and you say, "Oh my gosh, that's just like this thing," or it could be applied to here. I just love seeing being able to trace two disparate things that you thought were not related. It makes me so happy when they get smashed together. A trite example, but I've, I've always loved cover songs. I love hearing another band or musician play another band or musician's thing because it's like it's familiar enough, but then your brain is kind of wrapping your head around like, wait a second, this is not the thing that I knew. It's very different and I like it. And it's interesting. You know, another thing I always love doing when traveling is I love eating foreign food in foreign countries. You know, I would love to go to, uh, I don't know, Japan and go to a Texas steakhouse or something like that. You know, I just think that's so much fun. <laughs> because again, it's that that idea of like remix. And I love to see things that I thought were well understood by me, at least. Yeah. And just see people have their point of view put on it. And so that just, you know, a lot of things make me happy. But that's the probably one of the first things that comes to mind that makes me super happy to see. Yeah, that reinterpretation of something, someone else's take on it. And adaption, again, for different people's tastes, but it coming from a different country or culture. It's a really nice way of, uh, of framing it. What's the best cover song then? Oh, my gosh. Uh, oh, my. I, I think it might be Jeff Buckley singing Hallelujah. Okay, yeah, that's a good one. That that's a really, really good one. one. I mean, the Leonard Cohen one originally is great, but he took it to the next level. Yeah. Okay. Back to the questions. When are you offline? Weekends and evenings. I've I've done a really, I think, very concerted effort ever since I had my daughter to just keep business within business hours. Of course, you know, there's emergencies and things like that. You always do mm -hmm. it. But I love to try to work extra hard during the traditional working hours so that when it's evening or weekends, I can just be completely focused on either, you know, what I'm doing with my daughter or just have that downtime that you need to kind of be a sponge and look at stuff that's interesting to you. It's super important, isn't it? When was the last time you felt you were wasting your time and you only had yourself to blame for it? Oh my gosh. <laughs> when was I feeling? Oh, I guess I don't feel that that much. I don't know. It's interesting. I'm having it. This is the first one I'm having trouble thinking of that last instance. But that's good, Mike. You're clearly a very optimistic person, which I love. And so if you're never wasting your time, that's a lesson to us all, quite frankly. Well, okay. So over the last five years, I've gotten over this like hump I had before of if I'm in the middle of a book, 
or even in the first quarter of it. And I just, it's not working for me. I always had this kind of like thing. I was just like, no, you must finish. You must finish. You must mm. push ahead. And I would just like slog through it and it'd be terrible. And I kind of just got over that. And I just said like, if it's not working, I'm ditching it. All right. Now we can return to our conversation about the future of food. Let's start with what is the top trend that you are currently predicting for our food of the future? People trying to find ways to link sustainable food with more delicious food. This goes back to that original thing we were talking about, about immediate effects. I don't taste the climate reversing if I'm eating that metaphorical salad, you know, or that thing that's supposed to be climate smart. And you're always going to have, I think, whatever percent you want to call it, that front of the bell curve. of, And that front of the bell curve is growing. So I'm not saying there's not people that do this. You know, there's always going to be that person that has the education awareness and the kind of discipline to shift their behavior to say, climate change is a really big problem and I think my diet's contributing to it. So I'm going to really like make some new rules in my diet and my family's diet and we're going to stick to them, right? There's always going to be those people, I think, hopefully not, but right now they're in the minority. They have been in the minority and I don't think we can just put it all on those people's shoulders to change the food system through our eating habits. You really have to go towards sort of the middle of the bell curve. So I think that that's how you shift the change is how do you do that? And when you look at most people in the middle of the bell curve, they obviously, like everyone, chooses food. One of the primary things is you choose it on taste, right? And it's surprising to me how kind of sustainable food is sometimes marketed as like, "Mm, we're net zero carbon now. Okay, well, what does that taste like? (laughs) (laughs) What does net zero carbon taste like? And I think, so what happens is they'll differentiate and people will buy them, but it's for an academic reason. And I think like if, you know, if that person loses their job and they can't afford the premium anymore, or if they're hangry and they're running around like, you know, just doing errands, like, are you really trying to solve climate change that day? You know, it's not, doesn't mean you don't care about climate. It just means that you do care about climate, but you have an immediate physiological need right now to eat. And I don't care if it's the most earth-destroying piece of meat or something. Sometimes, like, especially when food is scarce, you just need food. And then once you have all those basic needs taken care of, you're afforded the extra bandwidth to say, hmm, okay, I can afford to now change my habits. So I think that's kind of a big thing is, you know, if you want to scale this idea of sustainable, regenerative agriculture and food, we need to find ways where you can tell people and demonstrate to them in the minds that, huh, sustainable grown food is actually more delicious than non-sustainable food. And the reason why is because they do this, this, and this on the farm, which is really great for the planet, but screw that, it's great for the taste. I don't think you can mutter that sentence out for many foods at all right now. And that's why I say this is not a trend, it's a thing that I think should happen, is that should be a conversation you hear people saying. Yeah, I'm not going to do a name and shame, but I can think immediately of a food brand, actually one that I eat and does taste good, but the whole marketing campaign at the moment is about the sustainability side of it. Mm-hmm. And that's not going to introduce it to new people, I don't think, unless it is people who obsess about sustainability through every aspect of their life. And to your point, that's still the fringes. People talk the talk, but they're not walking the walk in big numbers. 
you look at the aspirations of companies like Beyond Meat and Impossible Burger, right? And I know they're having kind of like a little bit of a, you know, contraction in their their sales and stuff like that. But their idea was, you know, they spent hundreds of millions of dollars to research in a lab how to turn a bean into something that tastes like beef. Okay, you've you've accomplished that. What are you going to make out of that? I think we just kind of take it as a foregone conclusion that we're going to they were going to make a hamburger. But they could have made a whole bunch of stuff. They could have made meatballs. They could have made sausages. They could have made deli cold cuts. But they didn't. They specifically chose in many Western, most of the Western world, the most iconic hedonistic food object there is, which is a hamburger. And and I don't think that decision should be lost in us, right? They they weren't choosing things that just like environmental activists were eating. They chose things that just everyone in the mainstream is eating. And they said, it's the same thing you ate yesterday, but our story is that it's going to save the planet. And obviously, you know, it's way more complicated than that. But that was kind of their pitch, you know, in a sense, like, help us save the world, eat this burger instead of that burger, and it tastes pretty much the same. That's their pitch. So I think that was not accidental. They understood that. It's interesting. I'm just like the tea and coffee. We could speak for an hour about that. But the burger market is really, really interesting. So I don't eat meat. And my husband doesn't eat meat, but my stepsons do. And it's like the holy grail for us. Can we find something that they will eat and that we can eat that's not just pasta and tomato sauce? And ironically, having tested lots of different burgers. Now, I would prefer like a bean burger, as we were discussing before. I'm not interested in fake meat. I don't need fake meat. I didn't really love meat. I don't eat it for environmental reasons, but it wasn't like a great loss giving it up. But we have found a meat-style veggie burger from our local co-op. Now, you won't have the co-op where you are, but it's a chain of small-ish supermarkets in the UK. The packaging is terrible of this. And I tell you, it blows all of those Silicon Valley faux meat companies out of the water. So next time you're in the UK, co-op, you can go and test that out. I would love that. that. I'm due for another UK food trip. (laughs) Yeah, I'd I'd say I'd post them, but I don't think they'd travel very well. Okay. I'm interested, you've talked a lot about data and the impact that our data is going to have on the kind of food that we eat in the future, but also how we eat in the future. Now, we live in a big data world. We are kind of scattering data, even in this conversation, I'm sure some of the things I've been speaking about, I will be getting ads for them in my Instagram feed in about 20 minutes time. You know, data is everywhere. But talk to me a little bit about how you see that impacting the world of food, but I guess us as consumers. So I think this is one of those that I think is probably leaning towards the 10-year kind of trend line. I don't think any of this is going to happen anytime soon. However, I think the raw materials of the of that will enable this to happen are happening now, which is this idea that we can one day get to a place where all the meaningful pieces of data about what's happening in our bodies can be captured and analyzed in a way that's seamless to our lives. So, you know, we don't have to like sit there every day and give ourselves a blood test or something like that. But one day, I think in a decade, you could kind of have all that stuff absorbed and analyzed and then kind of spit back at you in terms of some sort of recommendation of, hey, we know you're running a marathon in six months. Here's some suggested things that are made for your diet that you should eat. Eat this mix of proteins, carbohydrates, whatever. There's a lot of difficulty in kind of making that whole kind of thing happen. But I think it's conceivable that we could see it and you can kind of have this tool where you can rely on it if you need to, to kind of give you the perfect ideal thing for your body um, if you're meeting a goal. I think it's important to also have an off switch or a shuffle button on those things as well too, because 
I don't think that's a sustainable way of living to just have a computer tell you what to eat, you know, all the time. But for a lot of people, I think, you know, I think people have modes, right? Because I think you can travel to Spain for the weekend and have a wonderfully beautiful hedonistic wine-fueled dinner that's lovely, but then come back to, you know, Monday and just eat chicken salad for a little bit. So that's why I say about this on and off switch is like, maybe you have this tool, but it's not on all the time. You want it for sometimes. Now, we've both mentioned families. You've talked about your daughter. Um, I've talked about my stepsons. We've talked about this idea of kind of culture. People sitting around a table eating together. Now, yes, people, you know, have got their phones on those tables now, sadly, and people do have their TV suppers when they're watching multiple different screens. But do you think that that concept of a family getting together or people getting together to eat around a table is here forever? Or do you think that's something that will change in the future? I don't think it's ever going to completely go away. I hope not. I'm of the school of, I grew up in restaurant family with lengthy food gatherings. Like for a lot of families growing up, I, I recognize that <clears throat> for them, dinner was the thing they did before the show. You know, you go get a dinner really quick and then you go see a show, you go see a movie, you go see a football game, whatever. My family was never like that. There was never a show to go to. It was just dinner. And it was, that was it, you know? I think there will always just be kind of distribution shuffles between that, right? Obviously, you've got devices entering and less people kind of eating, you know, together or people eating alone and stuff like that. Like, you know, sad desk lunch is kind of an artifact of the last two decades that we've had, right? So, but I also think like, again, this comes back to the generational thing is I think like preferences can be somewhat cyclical, we kind of had this like moment in the 50s and 60s where like people as a culture embraced technology in their food. Oh my gosh, it's a frozen TV dinner. All I have to do is put it in this thing called the microwave. And, you know, especially back then, you know, women who were just kind of culturally like relegated to be housewives were like, this is liberation. I can get out of the kitchen. I have to cook. This is amazing. I love the technology and the food, right? And then you kind of like 30, 40 years later, you get to this point where everyone's like, what's in that? I'm not eating that. And so like now we reject technology in their food. And I think maybe we're at the beginning maybe of another embracing of technology because we've got the Beyond Burger and the Impossible Burger and then coming soon, you know, is is the, you know, lab-grown meat and stuff like that. So I just, I wonder if it becomes this another cycle like we had in the 50s and 60s where people are like, this is great. They made a cow in a fermentation tank and we didn't have to kill a cow. This is amazing, you know? And then maybe after that, another cyclical thing. So I think that the behaviors around technology in our food lives that kind of separate us, that might be here now, but I don't see any reason why it couldn't come back again and then go away again and come back again. I love making connections, trend connections between different industries. And I think what you've just described is also really pertinent to the beauty industry, that you have these periods where everyone wants really, really natural products, a really short ingredients list. They want to recognize all the names of it. And then we go into a kind of high-tech scientific period where not only does the consumer get better educated, but we're looking to the scientists, what are the products that are going to you know, make us look younger? And then you kind of swing back and it is it's this very cyclical nature. And you've described it really eloquently there within the food industry. But I guess all of these things are about a balance, right? So if science moves us forward, which means that we get the taste, we get the health, we get all of those things that we need, I think that's when it becomes more acceptable. When science is there to cover over or to just create a shortcut, I think that gets found out quite quickly. 
or comparatively quickly. I mean, you're talking about, you know, a, you know, a TV supper trend hasn't disappeared. Yeah. Again, it's a kind of movement, but our expectations of what that TV supper is, that has evolved. 100%. I mean, I, I think like I always say to anyone who will listen, clients, people, otherwise, is that if you work in food, you have to think emotionally and logically. You know, it, it took a lot of R&D and logical scientific process and thinking to produce the TV dinner. Mm -hmm. But I don't know if they knew it at the time or not, but, you know, it, it ended up having a huge cultural, emotional kind of value, right? And depending on, like you said, which one outweighs the other, like the emotional cultural value of like, hey, all of these 1950s housewives don't have to cook anymore is so much more powerful in that time than, oh, there's some sodium citrate in my cheesy mac and cheese. <laughs> Yeah. You know, and I don't blame them. I mean, come on. I mean, if it's if it's like I can change my lifestyle and be like independent and self-directed and get a job versus like being stuck in the kitchen, I'll eat some sodium citrate for that, you know? Yep. Needs must, right? Needs must. Yeah. And but I think but then you look at the state of TV dinners now, it's completely different. So like I, I think like you can never design food in a vacuum. Just because the mm -hmm. science works doesn't mean that it's relevant or meaningful. So you have to understand what's happening in the world too to see if your food science invention even makes sense, right? And so you gotta hit on both cylinders. Given that you work in predicting the future, are you more anxious or hopeful of what's in store for us in the years to come? I'm hopeful because I think the act of trying to think about the future makes you better prepared for it. You know, none of us have a crystal ball and trying to think about the future is not a matter of being right or wrong because no one can guarantee if they're right or wrong. It's just a matter of having a disciplined process by which you think more critically about the future and more open-mindedly. I think that's the value of it too. So I guess I'd be pessimistic if everyone stopped thinking about the future. As long as there are people thinking about the future, that's, then yeah, we're that's be a okay. recipe for disaster. Yeah, I'm optimistic because I think if we continually see the things in the future that are coming, we realize that we're not spectators in the future game. That's that's the other thing too. Is like I, I was at a farming conference and I told them all of these food trends that were happening, and then at the end of it, I said, "You are perfectly welcome if you don't like any of this to get up and change it." <laughs> I'm saying like I'm not here telling you what is going to happen in the future of farming. Like I'm a city boy. What do I know about farming? I just see what's happening with consumers and 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 technology trends. But if this makes you upset and you think a different future should exist, you're the one making the future. Like you can form a coalition and change that. So I think that's one of the beautiful things about it is that by by looking at something, you can change the outcome of what it is. I mean, it's you know Heisenberg's uncertainty principle basically applied to like futures planning, right? So <laughs> okay, so let's get back to the question from the beginning. Mm -hmm. When did you last learn something new that had an impact on the way that you live your life? Shortly after when my daughter was born and and she was sleeping somewhat stable, more stably, I started taking singing lessons. Wow, amazing. And and again, this has nothing to do with food, but again, I'm constantly thinking about ways to do that. And it just opened up a whole, and I've always been, you know, musical, and, and but I, I was always the worst singer ever. And I think the first thing I said to the singing lesson teacher over Zoom, because it's all like pandemic stuff, is she's like, what are your goals? And it's like, I have two things. I want to be able to sing nursery rhymes to my daughter in key so that she doesn't start crying. And two, I want to be able to just belt out a couple great songs at a karaoke night. That's it. Mike, what's your karaoke song? Under Pressure. That's one of them. 
You know I really want to ask you to sing some now. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not even warmed up. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think that was one of the first pop songs I worked with. My teacher always gives me like a classical, like, you know, school piece. And then we always work on kind of a pop piece. And that's a good balance. But I was like one of the, like my favorite songs ever. And I was like, wow, wouldn't that be cool to be able to sing the Freddie Mercury and the David Bowie parts? <laughs> And so I'm not saying I mastered it, but like I cracked it open. And, you know, it's just not only is that just personally achieving to kind of have like learn a new skill, but it opens up your brain pathways to think about things even more differently. Like I started like, you know, that was a that was a entryway into learning more about music theory and learning about the pattern recognition in music. And so now I can listen to any pop song and just be like, oh, that's a one, three, five chord progression. Whereas like, no, this is not just chaos. There's actually structure there, you know, and musicians know this, of course, right? But to me, who was like semi-musically talented in other things, to learn a new thing, it just stretched those synapses to kind of say, there's structure in this thing here that's as beautiful and chaotic as music. Where else is there structure where I'm not looking? So again, it just comes back to the thing is like everything you do or learn can be leveraged in more than what the current subject matter is. So is it, it's not about singing. It's just about finding a thing that makes you think differently. Mike, that is just the perfect way to wrap this up. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute delight talking to you. I feel we could have spent hours on many of these different topics, um, but I feel educated. I've learned things. I feel I know you a little better. So thank you so much for your time. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it as well. And sadly, that's it for this episode. I hope you found it as interesting and insightful as I did. Do let me know what you think about this podcast and the direction that you'd like it to be going in. You can write to me on lives at wgsn.com and give me your input anytime. And do stay tuned. A new episode will be out shortly about how we are all going to live our lives of tomorrow. I'm Carla Bazashi, CEO of WGSN. I'll see you next time.